Good morning, listeners. Last year, I won a student-led teaching award. Tim was the very motivated student at the time who nominated me. And when I went up and got my award, it was the most amazing sense of appreciation because it's people who had nothing to gain by saying what I did mattered. And I think it was the biggest buzz I'd ever got in an institutional sense outside of the classroom working in a university. So this idea of appreciation seemed really important for a few days and then I forgot about it. And then Tim discovered a book by Dr. Paul White all about the importance of appreciation. I'm joined in the studio by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, Tim. Are you awake? Because it's very early. <laughs> I'm awake. That's and two of us. We're joined by a very special guest all the way from the United States, Dr. Paul White. Thank you for joining us, Paul. Sure. My pleasure. Well, it's good to have you on. As David said in the intro, your books are something that I discovered through uh, Gary Chapman. I'm not sure if you would consider him a friend or colleague, but I found myself incredibly influenced, I suppose, by thinking of love and appreciation and holding value in other people in five different languages. I can explain those. However, I think it might serve the audience a little bit better if we give them some context, if you maybe want, would like to explain your five languages of appreciation. Sure. So I'm glad to, to be here with you all. So I'm a psychologist by training. And Dr. Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages, which is an international bestseller, it sold 18 million copies in wow. 50 languages. He's a great guy. I, and uh, we work together and he basically focuses on marriage and personal and family relationships. And I historically have consulted with family owned businesses because in the U.S., about 85 percent of companies are all family owned. And so working together and then also what's known as business successions or planning who's going to run the business and own it across generations is an important issue. And uh, my wife and I had been finding uh, reading the five love languages and I thought I was having some difficulties in relationships with some of my clients uh, between them. And I thought, oh, you know, this might help. So I approached and uh, pursued Dr. Chapman actually for a year and then sort of pitched the idea of working together and we started out by, first of all, identifying what sort of the common concept between love, you know, there's, there's problems with that in the workplace, obviously. So, what, you know, what's the equivalent in the workplace? And so we came up with appreciation. So I then started developing an inventory that turned into our online assessment that's since been taken by, I don't know, close to 220,000 people worldwide uh, to identify uh, person's primary way they like to be appreciated. So the five languages are the same in name, the five love languages and the five languages of appreciation, but they look differently in the workplace, obviously, mm. but they're words of affirmation. So that can either be sort of speaking, you know, an affirming word or compliment or writing it. Quality time is the second language. And that differs in uh, the types of time that people like to have with their colleagues or supervisor, whether individually with their supervisor, maybe hanging out with their colleagues going to lunch or going out afterwards. Uh, acts of service is the third language, which is not rescuing a low performing colleague, but rather in those situations where you've got a time deadline that you're pushing hard to get something done and what something somebody could do to help make that happen. And so that could be bring in lunch so you could keep working or maybe to manage your incoming call so you can keep focused on the project or maybe some a uh, small clerical worker. Uh, there's lots of different examples in different work settings. The fourth one is tangible gifts, which in our uh, model is not compensation or bonuses or raises. That's sort of the employee-employer contract, but rather small things. You know, a, a colleague would like to encourage them and, and shows that you're getting to know them and what they like. So it could be, uh, you know, their favorite coffee in the morning or maybe a magazine about, you know, their favorite sports team or even a hobby and that kind of thing. So, and then physical touch, uh, which obviously an interesting one to talk about in the workplace, but it's largely spontaneous celebration. I mean, it's a high five when you uh, finish a project, it's a fist bump when you solve a problem, maybe a congratulatory handshake when you make it a significant sale or something like that. So uh, those are the five languages and we've developed assessment and training to help 
teams learn how to communicate those to one another. It was really interesting, Paul, reading the section on physical touch, being blind, because in so many situations, you know, if I'm wandering off to a meeting or wandering off to give a lecture or, you know, interstate you know, training clients as a consultant, it's a case of it's so much faster if someone just offers me an arm and I can do sighted guide. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting seeing the different way people respond to me asking if they mind. You know, some people just immediately offer, what can I do to help? Right. And by immediately offering, you would think that would make them then more comfortable. But the amazing thing is some people are driven to offer, but still their arm ends up being this rigid thing where they're terrified they're going to walk me into a wall. It's an incredible combination of they want to help and then they're so worried about getting it right. And then other people don't know what to do when I ask them and they can immediately relax into just walking and trusting that as long as they get that right, I'll be fine. <laughs> so even in my experience, it's sort of the physical touch side of interacting with people where maybe I've met the other person before at the university in a meeting, or maybe it's a client I've worked with before, or a student I've taught for a year, but I'm about to walk somewhere and they want to pick my brain about this. I'm like, well, okay, you walk me to where I need to be next and you get 10 minutes of my undivided time. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating seeing or experiencing how differently people respond to the whole idea of touch in sort of a non-private setting. I can really see why you kind of put it in the, okay, we need to talk about it, but in the main, let's focus on the other four in the workplace. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, in the US, there's regional differences, right? So in the Southern part where people are a little more warm uh, and engaging, they will give, you know, like a side hug kind of thing. In the Northeast, New York, New Jersey, where things are a little more formal, you know, they just sort of nod across the room and say, hey. You and, know, that, and that's big, body deep body, body language and that's big emoting. Yeah. 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 So, um, and interestingly, I mean, it's impacted me. Like when I go and speak and train and then, you know, maybe get pictures with somebody, you know, especially with all the, the unfortunate sexual harassment stuff that has gone yeah. on. I just, my arms are just sort of limp to my side. I mean, I have people you know, on either side of me, as opposed to, you know, putting my arm around their shoulders, whatever. It's it's super awkward, but it is what it is. So. Yeah, it's one of those things that like, you know, often when I, I fly places for work and, you know, a female crew member on a plane will offer me an arm because they've had the training, but in a confined space. And in the back of my head is the thought, there's going to be a day where the back of my hand is going to end up going straight into their boob. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and is this going to be okay or is this going to be bad? Right. Um, seeing they've had training, I'm hoping for not bad. <laughs> On the back of your hand, it's probably not. Well, again, it's just it's the environment we're in now. Yeah. You, know, you hope it won't be. <laughs> anyway, that, that seems a rather big digression. To the first two languages, Paul, words of affirmation, you know, that was the amazing thing last year with getting the student-led teaching award. It made me realize that working in a university setting, how really – you know, words of affirmation were part of the experience. So right. winning the award was so amazing. And yet for my students, the biggest thing I've always been able to do for them is spend time with them. So I'm one of those odd bod academics where my consultation hours most years, other academics will tell me no one turns up to their consultation hours. I'll often end up with people sitting on all the chairs in my office, essentially right. having like a mini extra tutorial and even sometimes a couple of people sitting on the floor. And that thing right. of time is just so big for some people, particularly for young people, I think. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So, you know, we've given that we've had 200,000 people tell you, we've got decent data. And so, you know, 46% of respondents identify words as their primary language in the workplace. I think that's partly acculturation issues, but it's also partly sort of easy to do, you know, where you give somebody a compliment or write them a note or whatever. So that's a big chunk, but it's still less than half of the workforce say they would, uh, uh, you know, want words. So more than half want something else. Quality time uh, on our data is about 26%. So one about every four people. But what we actually uh, did some research with comparing uh, generations uh, because we gather some age data. And so we compared uh, millennials, people who were at the time 30 years old or less to older employees. And words was still the top language, but it, it moved from 46 to, I think, 38%. And quality time moved from 26 to 36. And so 
for younger employees, and we, we see that, that they want time with one another. And the other differences in the past, in the U.S. at least, you know, people, there was a saying, people don't leave a job, they leave a manager, um, and that you didn't get along with your manager. And so the flip side of it is that people wanted individual time with their supervisor or manager, either to talk or, you know, pick their brain or whatever. It's less true than it used to be. I mean, younger employees now prefer time with their colleagues. I mean, they, I've had a number of people say, I don't want individual time with my supervisor. They're pretty intense and I'm shy and, you know, I don't, I don't want that, but they like to go hang out, go out to lunch or hang out afterwards or, you know, even watch a sporting event at the weekend. So there's a sense of affirmation by being included in the group. Yeah, and that's very often the case now you see in class is it's got to the point where undergraduates are less willing to ask questions in class. But they're more than happy to chat amongst themselves. The problem is being blind. I can hear how fast they go off topic. Yeah, yeah. That's a wonderful little sentence. I go, I sense there is topic drift in the room, (laughs) which is a polite way of saying you people are talking about crap, get back on track. Right, right. being rude. And it's a real problem because what you're seeing is they're so used to getting information from technical devices from small screens, they don't necessarily realize, no, no, you're getting some blunt facts that way. You're not getting insight from people who know how to do what you're struggling with and you're confusing facts with knowledge. What you need is to talk to someone who can help you turn the facts into knowledge, not more facts that you don't know how to use. Right. So it's a really interesting generational distinction, I think. Yeah, and and with regards to the, the words, there's also a ge- generational difference, at least in the States. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, and I'll come back to a, a cult, cultural difference we found uh, as well. But in the past, here uh, at a personal level, if you got a nice birthday or Christmas gift from your grandma, you always had to write a handwritten note. You know that was sort of the highest form, and that transferred over into the workplace that people felt like you know a handwritten note uh, was valuable. And that's still true for older workers and and many younger. Well, I'd say about half, fifty percent of younger women, but twenty-something guys don't give a rip about get a handwritten note. What is important and more important to them is the speed in which they get feedback. Right? Yeah, it's so, got to be that very short loop of yeah. instant gratification before they've moved on to the next novelty item. Yeah, yeah. We, we have a number of trainers in Australia as well as we have uh, some in Singapore. Did some research that found that Singapore employees, their primary language is uh, acts of service more than words. That there is a, a value to having somebody especially if a supervisor helps you with something, not that you're deficient in it, but that there's sort of a camaraderie. They seem to, to value that highly more than words. So That's really interesting because it seems to fit very strongly with the fact that they've tried to go, right, we are very different you know, populations in Singapore. You've got Malay, Chinese, Indian, and expats from the West. And this idea of we need a unified set of behaviors for how to be in public. So they really doubled down on that idea of good behavior and help your fellow citizen. And it's interesting that that can become so normalized that it then flows into how people would like other people to behave around them. Like I'd say Australians are very much driven by words because we're not a very touchy-feely culture. Mm -hmm. So touch is not going to be all that big. I'd say there's a high proportion of older Australian males that would be very much active service. Hmm. And I put myself in that category. It, it would, certainly wouldn't be my primary language, but certainly if someone does something for me that makes my day simpler and faster, and again, it might just be a consequence of you know being blind and needing to just say to people, hey, can you help me with this? This is really difficult to do with not being able to see it. So it might, again, just be a learned thing, almost like the Singaporean example. But the act of service thing can just make your day easier and take pressure off. Right. Yeah. I mean, I had a CEO tell me, he said, my language is get her done. He said, don't tell me stuff. Don't give me stuff. Just help get stuff off of my plate. Yeah. And, you know, you're on my team. Conversely, I mean, I have a friend who's a leader in an inner city school. And he said, you know, he grew up in a subculture where if you got a compliment, the next thing that was coming was an ask. So, you know, if a friend said, hey, you know, you look like you're doing well you got an extra 20 or can you take me for a ride? And so he sort of developed this negative expectation around words that, you know, somebody was basically manipulated them to try to get something from him. And so he said, you know, words don't mean anything. Time meant something. He happened to be a coach. And if you went and hung out with him at practice, 
you know, he'd lit up and he'd tell you about the kids and what's going on. So, you know, yeah, our, our subcultures do clearly impact us. And it seems like the time and words thing are pretty linked because often the easiest way to get the words is to be able to get some quality time with the first, the person first so they have time to work out what they want to say. So I think the, the thing of students coming and you know, sitting in office for consultation hours is less about the time maybe under those circumstances than it is an opportunity to talk about things deep enough to get to kind of the words they need or want to hear. What kind mm-hmm. of feedback do they need? And I need to know them well enough to be able to make it meaningful because the worst thing in the world is generalizations like, oh, you did well. well. Did well doesn't mean anything. No, the research was good. The application was good. The presentation was good. It needs to be far more specific if people are going to take meaning from it. Exactly. I mean, we did some research. We, had, uh, we have about 80,000 people on our newsletter list, and we'll do polls occasionally, ask questions. And we asked what kind of affirmation or words people don't want to hear, and one of the main ones was good job. Because it's too vague and it's too general and doesn't, you know, doesn't take a lot of thought. And so we teach a model of to give a really effective compliment. Uh, it's sort of three parts. First is use a person's name. We like to hear names. And if you're writing it, be sure and spell their name correctly. Um, secondly, you know, be specific about what they've done uh, or who they are that you value. And then the third part that most of us leave out is why it's important either to us or to the organization or to the clients that we're serving. So it might be, you know, Brian, thanks for, you know, coming in early and getting things set up for this meeting uh, because that way, you know, we didn't have to rush around and look like we didn't know what we were doing and it gave a better image to, you know, the clients and so forth. So uh, yeah, the more specific, and I think my experience is that the more specific you are, the more likely they're going to perceive it as being authentic rather than, just going through the most. Because the why, the first thing that made me think as I was reading your book when you got to the importance of why is I started linking this to sort of Viktor Frankl and you know, the, the search for meaning and the idea that you know, there's meaning in love, work, and in how you confront suffering. And what popped into my head from that was, okay, why is it really important to people because meaning's so important? In your research, did you find anything like in a job where the meaning is not that clear, appreciation becomes more important and in a job where the meaning is very clear people can cope longer with less appreciation so there's a bit of a balancing act between meaning and appreciation do you think yeah i think there is i i I can't you know say that i've done research specifically on that but clearly uh and this bears out in the the research around employee engagement which appreciation is a part of but people they need to know uh, what they do matters, and how it ties to the mission of the organization. So, for example, I grew up in the context of a family business that was a manufacturing firm. And, uh, you know, you and I worked there in the summers as a kid and a student. And, you know, you're at the back of a conveyor belt that's spitting out stuff, and you maybe glue things together, and then you package them. Well, it's important, and my dad was really good. I think he was ahead of the game of um, – taking the team, the, the sort of the manufacturing team, and showed them what the end product was going to be. They were like Hallmark card display, so things at Christmas time and all that that were in the stores, so that people could see why it was important that you glued this straight or you know how what you were doing contributed to the end product. And clearly, you know, research has shown that people, when they, they know that what they're doing is tied to the overall mission, uh, they tend to do better. And some of the times that's more evident and overt, and other times it's it's less so, and you have to... Yeah, it's an it interesting out. contrast. You know, when you're training undergraduates in university, there should be meaning in learning. But in a lot of cases, the meaning is on the fact that this is summative, they're going to be assessed. And yet if I'm training a group of people right. you know, within Special Operations Command, the meaning is they chose this life. And learning is how to be better at what they do. Yeah, is the safety of themselves and their team members, right? I mean, often it's it's very serious meaning that they need to learn. So it makes teaching them just a breeze because their natural default state is, I chose this and learning is better for all of us. Yeah. So they can be the goofiest people until it's time to start a lesson. And then they can go from being you know, goofy and playing with paper planes and stabbing each other with pencils to sitting 
dead still and taking notes at warp speed in about two seconds. Wow. Completely different way of functioning. Where students, it's like, okay, guys, you know, learning is fun and it's also meaningful. Oh, well, what do you mean you're only obsessed with what the assessment's going to be? Well, that's the principal thing. If you get a good grade, the next door opens. So we end up with this emphasis in universities that there's always a danger of it devaluing the meaning because it can't answer the why question properly. So, you know, your emphasis on the why is that third part to me seems very important and I realize how often I forget it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as a psychologist and having taught in that area and counseling and so forth, and, I, you know, the medical professions are big in the States now and I think it's a little bit easier, although I don't think professors or instructors usually do it, but I think it's a little easier to link that, hey, you need to learn whether it's, you know, these chemical compounds or, you know, these biological processes because they're the building blocks for understanding, you know, how the heart or lungs work or whatever. You don't get it, you know, you're not going to be able to think through things and problem solve and misdiagnose and mistreat. An interesting thing that came up in the book, and I think you only mentioned it once, but it really resonated with this idea that we're seeing more and more functional relationships in workplaces. And I thought about, again, working in different places as a consultant. Some places people relate to each other really well and other places it is the title on their door or on their email signature that defines how they relate to each other and they wonder why they can't manage to improve productivity. The functional relationship thing, it seems to be a massive problem now. Well, and it, there's a lot of sort of reasons that we've uh, sort of descended into the way we think about one another in the workplace. But part of it is that we tend to forget that, you know, our colleagues or employees, students, they're people first. I mean, we're people first, we're people during and we're people afterwards. And, and when we start treating one another just as, you know, sort of uh, machines or production units, then really we do become just like uh, uh, some kind of resource to be used. And it, it, you know, devalues the whole situation. So uh, the situation that functional relationships, I've not found really an answer for yet, is we were approached by a major, you know, IT international company that wanted us to work with one of their international teams all over the world, but that never met one another, and they and how to you know communicate appreciation to one another. And I, I'm like, I don't think this is gonna work. I'm gonna try, but you know, and it failed miserably actually. And and I don't think it's because I gave up on it. I, I, part of it really was well, I've come to conclude as a result that to really show appreciation for a person, and that's somewhat of a difference than recognition. In our mind, recognition is largely about performance. I mean, you have recognition, at least here in the States, for length of service, which is just sort of a a separate deal. It's not motivating at all. But, you know, you can recognize somebody for good, you know, uh, quality work and so forth. But that's different than appreciating them as a person because we have other characteristics and parts of our lives that don't relate directly to performance, at least with like a sense of humor or, you know, running a, a marathon or something like that. And, and you can value and appreciate somebody for, for that. It's not about their performance. And when we just are functional about bring a team together and we're going to work, you know, you bring the, the statistics and you bring the technology and, you know, whatever, and you sort of work on a project. That's fine. And you can I think you can recognize and, you know, call attention to somebody's good work. But that's not the same as valuing them as a person. And when you don't know them, you've never met them or interacted with them. You know, it feels sort of weird if somebody tries to communicate appreciation to you as a person. And usually they miss the mark and it can feel manipulative. And it's also it's hard to keep that going in a group context because it's not very motivating because it just feels weird and so that's really what happened it just died and it's really interesting you talk about that because Uh, i read scott birkin's book uh the year without pants where he'd been a really senior young team leader at microsoft and then wanted to do something really different and jumped to wordpress and his initial team were in five different countries and had never met one of the wonderful things with wordpress because he was like employee number you know 58 or 60 or something was there was enough money to get them in the same place at least twice a year for a week. 
And that until they could achieve that, you know, hanging out in the same hotel, working on their laptops beside each other, helping each other with coding in real time, physically by just leaning over and making suggestions, that that was the breakthrough. Yep. From him. Yep. And actually, I just wrote a, an article just sort of defining or trying to delineate different kinds of virtual teams. And because I think there are virtual teams that exist that they maybe worked together previously in a setting and now are in different locations. And then you know, you have this continuum and then you have these people that have randomly never met one another and will never meet one another. And the purpose of the group is just a task uh, that's very different than, uh, you know, trying to build a team together that uh, are in different locations, but hopefully at least, you know, have occasion. To jump back to the difference between recognition and appreciation, I think one of the really important points you made in the book about that too is the deal can go wrong. The product cannot get to the point of you know, being minimum viable product, but the people can still have done an excellent job of trying to get it there. So appreciation can mm-hmm. exist for sort of effort rather than outcome. And it struck me it's mm-hmm. kind of the Carol Dweck stuff about mindset, whether it's growth or fixed. If you're all about recognition mm-hmm. for it was fabulous, that's sort of a fixed mindset kind of thing. Whereas if you can see that in the failures and the challenges and the difficult days, are the foundations for much better performance later than acknowledging their, you know, appreciating effort, appreciating time, appreciating that someone was willing to lead the discussion to try and debug what we were working on becomes even more important. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the other aspect is that, you know, we go through periods of time where we're not at our top performance, whether uh, like my, daughter and her husband recently had, you know, uh, a baby and sleep deprivation (laughs) affects, you know, our performance. And it's not that they're bad people or poor workers. It's just that, you know, things happen or you're having to take care of a senior parent or something. And I think, you know, appreciation takes into account life and life stages and experiences and you can still affirm people even if they aren't at the top of the game. And And that actually relates to the other issue is that recognition for performance is the way it's set up here in the States. If it's set up even halfway decent tends to affect the top 10 or 15% yeah. of a team and the same people over and over. So then you have sort of this big middle group of 50 to 60% of good people. They're solid. They're trying, they're working hard to, you know, they may not be stars, but they're solid. And yeah, they don't hear you can anything. run the organization so, without them because even though they may not have the big breakthrough idea, they get the nuts and bolts done every day and they stop errors building up absolutely. and becoming cascades. Yeah. So if you look at something like high reliability organizations, the stuff that I can't think of his name now, surname's weak, where he worked on sort of you know, aircraft carrier crews and emergency room staff and this idea that everyone there is committed to the bigger picture. Well, they may not be a superstar, but they've got that sense of commitment. Now, if you balance that commitment then up with also appreciating that commitment, that's going to improve the, you know, people's ability to go to work, be middle of the pack, be you know, not totally invisible, but generally invisible and cope with that, hopefully, and get more, more joy and satisfaction out of going to work. And I mean, one of the key research studies that we often cite showed that 79% of people who leave a job voluntarily cite a lack of appreciation as one of the key reasons they're leaving. Most managers and employers think people leave for more money. And that's clearly not, I mean, we've got decades of research that shows that's not the case. Now, they, there may be more money in the cards for them, but that's not the reason they left because leaving a job takes emotional energy. I mean, to disengage and to decide and re-engage. And so it takes an emotional driver. And when people feel like you don't give a rip about what they're doing or they never hear anything, you know, they're saying, I've had enough of this. I need to go where I'm appreciated. And so that's where it really can affect the, and the implementation of being able to communicate authentic appreciation can really positively affect an organization uh, to keep their solid team members. And so you don't have that lost period of time where People are out and you have to rebuild relationships. Yeah, I had a friend who was a statistician who was in an organization where there was lots of meaning in the work but not much appreciation. And the bank offered him a very, very large amount of money to go and be a statistician for a bank where there was more appreciation 
more remuneration, mm -hmm. uh, but almost no meaning. <laughs> the other thing oh, is wow. too yeah, right. that you know, moving the stress of moving from one thing to another is not that you really have any idea. Are you going to balance up your needs for appreciation and meaning? Any better. You really don't know what you're going into. So yeah, leaving is far more significant than managers give it credit for. Absolutely. Now I'm interested, you know, you work in a university setting. So as I've gone around and spoken and trained at different places, primarily in the US, but some in, in Europe as well, and that at breaks or afterwards, people would come up and ask me questions and, you know, tell me stories. Usually they were stories about how nasty their workplace was or what a jerk their boss was. So I wound up doing research on toxic workplaces. My sort of informal conclusion was there's really about four or five top toxic types of organizations uh, here in the States, hospitals, because they're just, they're a mess. Um, public schools, long-term care facilities, government agencies, social service agencies, and universities. And, and the common theme is that, you know, those organizations sort of have multiple supervisors and poor decision-making and communication and and too many people that you have to try to please. No, that's, that's exactly what I see in the places I've worked because you've got all the problems you've described. You've got something that should have deep meaning in it, but in the main you've got people, well, you've got two different groups of people. You've got people who've gone through and got their PhD and love their individual mm -hmm. tree in the forest they study but maybe don't like anyone yeah. else's tree Great. and forgot that they like people. Yeah. You've then got managers right. who are qualified to manage a business but can't understand that the meaning connected with education costs more money and takes more time and that if you skimp on the things that make education work, you can make it look like a successful business but you won't make it a successful educational facility, then you've got the thing that each discipline has its own idea of what the ideal organization looks like. Then you have the fact that you have a senior administration who have to both be academically very capable and managerially very capable and somehow have to come up with an idea of both that can be sold to every individual unit. So I would argue that what most Australian unit, you know, universities are, they're a bit like a donut. In the middle should be this strategic alignment and resource allocation that brings everyone together. Unfortunately, what's in the middle is a hole, and around it is a mm -hmm. whole series of gobs of dough, which are individual disciplines that are glued together by being part of the same university um, and by having students who maybe cross over faculty bounds. But the reason we put you know chocolate on top of the chocolate donut is so we can't see all the cracks in the dough. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's interesting how you highlighted those toxic workplaces seem to be mostly based on care for other, like the actual work seems to be based on care for other people between education and, and being in a hospital setting. That is. It, and I think it's that clash between people who go into those careers think this is going to be about meaning and looking after people mm. and then discover they spend 55 to 60% of their day fighting battles with a system that wants economic efficiency rather than quality outcomes. Yeah. What do you think, Paul? Similar answer? Is that what I would call mission-driven organizations, you know, for caring and so forth, mm -hmm. they can manipulate that um, and, and really just suck the life out of their employees by always sort of going back to, well, you know, if you really cared about, you know, the people or the mission yeah. or whatever, you'd keep going. And then we just... We just totally suck all the life out of them and, and toss it to the side. And so there's a, there's a sort of a perverse mismanagement sometimes. Of yeah, those like guys. in 2015, I got so jack of the uni constantly playing that card that I walked away for two years until I got a phone call at nine o'clock at night, you know, saying help. <laughs> but again, I went back right. because in that yep. group of students I was asked to help were my three last undergrads from 2015 who hadn't yet graduated and it was their last semesters. So I really jumped back in simply oh, because oh. three of my favourite last students were there. And in coming back, got exposed to students like Tim again and went, okay, I know what the institution is. I know that I need to wear body armour. <laughs> but for the sake of students, right. put the body armour on. 
Right. No. Yeah, I tell people because I've worked in a variety of settings is, you know, the organs that you, you know, you may be good and you may be very valuable, but the organ organization exists for itself. And if you leave, it will continue to, you know, exist in 99% of the cases. So don't stay for the per sake of the organization if it's eating you up. And this and is this so, mission thing again. Yeah. You stay for the sake of the student, client, patient, those people who need something life transforming out of the institution. But you still have to find a balance of staying for them, but minimizing the institution's ability to do harm. Yeah. And so a key part in healthy workplaces uh, is to, first of all, take care of yourself. And, and, and the key sort of red flag is when you're not sleeping well, because locks of sleep makes a lot of other bad things happen. Um, and so that as well as social support. Um, and so obviously appreciation could do that. And, you know, it doesn't, most of the organizations that we work with, it's not organization wide. And in fact, I rarely will go into the organization and we do sort of a top down implementation because when you do that, it undermines the yeah. perceived authenticity. So usually we have some individual as our supervisor or even some workers that say, Hey, let's try this. And we, it actually, you know, we help support them and you can, you can start wherever you are. So you don't have to be, uh, you know, have a position of leadership or whatever. We had a lot of people that were, just a regular worker or a, a supervisor of a small group, and they started applying the five languages of appreciation in the workplace and doing it authentically. And it sort of grows virally. I mean, we went across several large organizations that it was just one little unit. It started yeah, in much better starting with one so, team. And if they see value in it, you've got yes. your buy-in when you come back to spend a week with you know one team per day. The difference it can make, whereas if you get a bunch of mid to senior level managers, if you get high buy-in from them, you go, okay, this is nice, but how effectively are they going to translate what I'm teaching them? But if you get a whole exactly. So the way we work is where I'll often go in and do a, you know, a training for managers, largely to give them the big picture and have the same language, common language, and then. We look for champions, uh, either from them or somebody who reports to them, and mm. do little pilots and start out from there. Yeah, to get a team that want it and are willing to engage it. Other teams that go, I want that too. You know, it's really, it's lovely. But again, that's that thing. If you start treating people as individuals who need meaning and you want to give them a better environment and they want to give themselves a better environment, you can achieve almost anything until you hit the limits of the institution's flexibility. And if you're lucky, you know, so many institutions now you know, here in Australia seem to be at the point where they know they need to change. And this would be something interesting to get your opinion on. I think when the GFC happened, we had a group of leaders who were looking to probably leave the workforce 2009, 2010. But when their retirement funding and everything else got smashed, they decided to stay. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest problem I see in institutions mm -hmm. in Australia, whether it be corporate or you know, government or educational, is a generation who should have you know, gone away in 2010 still haven't gone away, but they're tired. They don't want to grow anymore. Their focus is primarily on exiting in a state of comfort, not in preparing for transformation. And it means the generation below them who should have long since taken over are totally and utterly frustrated, unable to get promotion, unable to implement change, and they're looking down at the 25 to 30-year-olds going, kid, sorry, I can shield you from the garbage, but we can't change anything yet. Right. Yeah, no, I, clearly that is true in the state. So as far as in government settings, uh, it's just like, you know, and I forget, they have a, a, a term that they use it, but it's sort of like, you know, yeah. they're sort of like Sounds zombies, right? And then and then it saps all any potential motivation from those underneath that want to <coughs> move up and change, but it's interesting. Um, uh, and I, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see how things What happens with forward. family um, businesses there? Because again, if you're working with so many family businesses, how much friction is there 
That's a good question. Where someone has been in a position of power, has built the business or has taken what grandpa gave them or grandma and grown it and are looking at their kid or grandkid going, kid, you're just not knowledgeable enough yet. Do they hang on too long as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, when I go and speak on family business succession, I mean, I, I actually, I, sir, this becomes my last point that I re-emphasize, but it's, the biggest challenge yeah. is getting the owner out because for a lot of reasons, I mean, you know, their identity is wrapped up in it and so forth. And they don't have something else that they've sort of fostered in their life along the way and control part of it. Can, and that's where sort of the business ownership succession and management succession have to work together because they're not going to turn over the management of it to somebody else if their financial security is still in the business. And so we have to, you know, transition that. And what happens is often we have to have sort of middle level or uh, bridge management because the next generation isn't ready yet. It's not that they're bad. It's just that they're still too young. They would be 30, 35. And so we try to try to find some, maybe a a non-family person that's willing to come in for five to 10 years and not own it, but, you know, help direct it and and mentor. And then, uh, and then the next generation takes over. I can't imagine kind of more fertile breeding ground for uh, conflict in a workplace than perhaps, perhaps some you know family businesses. Like and these are just, the people you're going to see on Christmas Day and on birthdays. No, you absolutely. want this to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's a lot of unnecessary stress. Yeah. Do you have methods uh, that you can employ for – because I'd imagine, uh, Paul, you, you see quite a lot of companies that are already struggling with – workplace conflicts do you find that uh, appreciation is will fix that problem or do you find that it's actually incredibly difficult to employ once there are already significant workplace conflicts yeah so i mean i think it has to do with the stage uh and intensity of the conflict i mean one of the things we talk about is that when team members feel valued and appreciated uh conflict over stupid little things goes way down because those happen like what size your monitor is or whether or what window you get to look out of or where your parking spot is, whatever. Those things that don't mean anything, it's, it's because they don't feel valued and so they're sort of chippy or irritable and uh, and they get upset over stupid things because, you know, it just reinforces the sense that they don't feel valued. When people feel valued, they tend to slough those off and it's it, it makes it a far more fluid, peaceful kind of environment. Now, if you have somebody that's, you know, majorly torqued off for some significant issues, you know, and one of the points that we make is, you know, don't just sort of walk into the room and start throwing appreciation around when you've got some things you got to deal with because they're not going to believe it. So, and sometimes I'll tell people, say, let's say you had a conflict with another manager and you say, you know, we didn't agree on this and it is what it is. But in spite of that, I do really value and appreciate the creativity you bring to our team and how you, you know, help make things go well. So you'll at least acknowledge it and make it overt and then, you know, sort of go around it in spite of it. If you ignore it, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. And not doing something until it's resolved could, you know, take decades, if not millennia. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, sort of, trying to communicate uh you acknowledge it but that yeah, the consistency of it is such a big thing like at the moment i've got three of my former students working you know essentially for me as researchers on a major project and they put so much pressure on themselves wanting to work at the level that will meet what they think my expectations are and even though i've indicated that my expectations right. are just do a decent job you're all here because you're very, very capable. You don't need to do any more than what you've done for me when you were students. But because they're getting paid now, so I really have to remember to keep going, just do what you always do. And I really appreciate that. I don't need you to suddenly jump a level. Why would have I hired you to a jump to a level you haven't done before? But you need to be very consistent about this because people will get like a bug in their ear that, you know, something's a problem. I'm not living up to expectations. Well, no, they might not be living up to their expectations, but that's a whole other issue. You're absolutely right. Expectation management is sort of the key to. And if you get the expectation management right, then it's much easier, I would imagine, to get the consistency in 
I expected this. I explained this is what I expected. You articulated back. You understood it. And now I can show you appreciation on the thing that I expected and you expected. So you, you get a nice thing of a, a really, I would hope, a really balanced work relationship with people. You know, I don't know if we emphasize this enough, but one of the key things that we learned along the way is that appreciation and recognition, well, appreciation especially, is not just for supervisors and managers, that it's too much weight for, uh, you know, a singular leader to carry for the whole team. And so we really work on training the whole team and how to show appreciation to one another. And it just makes deeper, you know, more meaningful, less conflictual relationships when you know some, even if you disagree about things or have different talent sets that, you know, you know that they value, you know, your skill well, One of the first things I said to the researchers is, okay, you three, swap phone numbers, emails, and set up a Facebook chat group. Yeah. You are the best support network for each right. of the three of you. If you can't get me, talk to each other. Yeah. And if there's a group you can't work something out, then definitely talk to me. Don't think you have, you know, you've somehow failed if you can't answer it. The three of you just don't have the experience yet. So what do you think we should reinforce or, or talk about that we haven't? You know, what do people need to know as fundamentals for starting to do a better job of appreciating other people so that they can get a bit more appreciation you know, back and set up a better team environment? Well, I think there's two things. One is, and this seems somewhat simplistic, but I find that people need to hear it, is that you have to remember not everybody feels appreciated in the same way that you do. And so there's some people that going up in front of a group, about 40% of U.S. employees don't want to go up in front of a group to be recognized. And so you have to understand that. And like we said, you know, words is 46 and gifts is actually only 6%. So you have to understand people are different than you. And I tell developing leaders, if you want to lead a group, you have to learn how to lead people who are different than you. Otherwise, you have a bunch of little mini yous falling around and you may be wonderful and bright and all that, but you need different skill sets and personalities. And then the other part is I just say, you know, start somewhere with someone. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you can start with the one or two, three people you work with day in, day out, and start to make a difference and it can grow from there. And so I would just, you know, encourage people, you know, we have a website, appreciationatwork.com, and it's the word at, not the at sign, but appreciationwork.com. And our book is there and our assessment, which you get a, a code to take it with the book and training kinds of things and all kinds of free videos and articles and stuff. So check it out and, and just start. What I found so incredible about, you know, your work and, and as well with uh, Dr. Chapman is how much it improves uh, your quality of life. You know, we're all social beings and feeling appreciated, feeling loved in in every setting effectively is possible. And, you know, I, I would love to know from you, have you found that, you know, what you've kind of studied, has it changed your approaches to other areas of your life? Has it kind of impacted uh, even your relationships outside of a romantic or professional setting? Oh, for sure. I mean, clearly with friendships, you find out what people uh, value and, and how you can encourage and support them. And I would say even beyond that, I, I would say in professional relationships where you're developing, you know, affiliations or networks or, you know, you, uh, to really be able to be appreciative, show gratitude to people rather than sort of trying to figure out what you can get from them. I think it, 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 people get a sense of that and start to value that. And, and it's sort of, you know, it, it becomes a giving community uh, rather than sort of this competitive, you know, scarce approach to resources. And uh, I, I find it quite free. And, 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 it's interesting you say that because one of the things I, I try and always get the students to understand in my complex problem-solving subject is that everything, if possible, should be a plus-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game where one person wins and one person loses. If you can go up to people and offer them something where you get something you need or want and they get something they need or want, they are far more likely to want to work with you and you're far more likely to build a better relationship. And that, you know, a plus-sum game, it takes a bit more effort. You don't get as big rewards initially, but in the long run, the world takes care of itself much better. 
And 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 your time frame has to be broader too. I mean, when we're younger, we tend to think of shorter time circles. And I live in a fairly small city and community, and five hundred thousand people. And so, yeah, you know what goes around comes around, and then ten years down the road. But you know, treat, treating people well and with respect, and you know, resolving any conflicts that you can goes well uh, mm. along the road. Down. Well, Paul, uh, we very much appreciate your your time today i just want to open up this time for you to let our listeners know what work you're up to at the moment if there's anything that you would like them to know mainly i continue to just try to help get the word out so that uh, there's so much what i would call penetration that's still needed in healthcare, in government in almost anything now and we're fortunate in that you know our book has done well i mean the the average business book sells about three thousand copies we sold 425,000 copies wow. and we're selling about a thousand a week. I'm thankful. It seems like, you know, it works and it's helpful. And, you know, we have different languages. We have larger cor- where we're working at right now is we have larger multinational corporations coming to us and offering to translate some of our materials into Thai and Mandarin and Portuguese and other languages to apply it cross culturally. So that's, we're just continuing to try to help and and get the word out and, and you know make the, the resources relevant and and do you know a little bit of research here and there along uh issues and topics that come up and, and try to make things uh, well paul uh we hope that your uh, language of appreciation is words of affirmation because uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and yeah it's been really enjoyable to kind of hear you speak you're a rather erudite man so uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a real privilege. Well, thank you, and I, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, with you all. Uh, and because uh, we do have a, a fairly good following in Australia, but I want to help you know get the word out there, and, and uh, pleased to you know be able to help out with this group, and uh, hopefully, you know, leaders, uh, students, and, and the developing leaders will take this and and start to impact uh, their workplaces as they move out. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.